Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, everybody. This is Lou Dobbs. The Russian forces surrounding Kiev are digging in, preparing defenses against increasingly successful counterattacks and assaults by the Ukrainian military and resistance. 100,000 Ukrainians remain trapped in Maripol, and the situation is grim for the survivors of near-constant Russian bombardment of the city. And President Zelensky is calling on Pope Francis to do everything in his power to persuade Vladimir Putin to meet Zelensky in talks aimed at calling a ceasefire. The White House and Pentagon have been warning that President Putin is prepared to use bioweapons and chemical weapons against the Ukrainian forces that have held off his army for weeks now. President Biden today said if Putin does use biochem weapons, the United States will respond, as he put it, in kind. Welcome to the Great America Show. Thanks for joining us. In other developments today, the Pentagon says... Biden still wants a nuclear deal with Iran, but won't acknowledge the central role Russia has in negotiating that deal. President Biden is truly playing with fire and is committing constant constitutional overreach, whether at home or abroad, as he is now. And at home, Senate hearings for the judge nominated to the Supreme Court is clearly far outside the mainstream, and her record for eight years as a district court judge reveal a radical leftist, and there is hardly a record at all of her appellate court tenure, which amounts to little more than half a year. Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson has apparently intimidated the Republican senators in her confirmation hearings because they haven't addressed her lack of experience, but not Senator Hawley and certainly not Senator Cruz. They've made it clear she's not mainstream in her conduct as a judge, associates herself with CRT and is unquestionably an activist left-wing judge. As we've discussed here on The Great America Show, there's no legitimate fact-based scientific reason for President Biden to keep the enormous, extraordinary powers that were declared to deal with the COVID pandemic in 2020. And it's clear President Biden is intent on retaining those powers, despite the Senate's passage of a bill to end the national emergency. Biden obviously believes those extra powers will be helpful in the midterm elections, and he has threatened to veto any legislative effort to strip him of those extraordinary powers. And it's no accident that Dr. Fauci was back out in front of television cameras to talk up the new Omicron variant, to talk up the surge he now says he expects, and to warn us, of course, that we may have to go back to old restrictions. Even Fauci figured out that didn't play well with the American public because it's plain we don't have an appetite for any more authoritarian rule or nonsense. No, the question is, will our new world order president understand fully 
that he has now overplayed his Marxist hand. Joining us here on The Great America Show is one of the leading doctors in the country, whose knowledge as a physician and his courage as a citizen awakened millions of Americans to the threats of big pharma and our big government to our freedom and the limits and dangers of vaccines, medical orthodoxies, and bureaucratic authoritarianism, and the importance of treatment when it comes to the virus. With us now is Dr. Peter McCullough, internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, and host of his own podcast called America Out Loud. Great to have you with us, doctor, and thanks for all you've done for this country and for all of us. So here we go. Let's start with the, the topic that is dominating uh, the news space, uh, but, but really not with any great context or explanation. And that is the BA2 variant, uh, President Biden telling us it's uh, bad in Europe and it's going to get worse here. Uh, we'd like you to answer the question just how bad or dangerous is BA2? I can tell you, I think almost all uh, people following the virus and media doctors have learned to be cautious about making predictions of uh, these waves. Uh, the Omicron variant, which is a highly uh, mutated form of the virus, it's gone through the sequence of uh, wild type alpha, beta, gamma, delta, and now Omicron. Omicron can be divided into two subvariants. One is BA1. And the BA1 variant uh, is so mutated that actually one of the primers that the PCR test picks up, it's called the S gene primer, is missing. Uh, the BA2 subvariant is uh, a, and actually a less mutated form of Omicron where the S gene is actually present. So a PCR test that tests for that primer could actually tell BA1 versus BA2. The measures of infectivity come from in vitro studies, and they're actually hard to interpret because uh, so many people have had the virus now. If someone with a BA2 runs up against somebody who previously had BA1, they'd already have immunity, wouldn't pass it to them. And so uh, it's hard to calculate that. It's clear though, that the BA2 subvariant is finding pockets of susceptibility, particularly in Asia, Hong Kong, and I've been following the story in South Korea. Uh, which is interesting. South Korea is having far and away the largest rise in cases and deaths right now, and they're 93% fully vaccinated and boosted. But fully 90% and they're having the worst experience. Right, 93%, yeah, fully vaccinated and boosted and they're having the worst experience. And I, I think it speaks to the, the observation that the virus has mutated uh, really to beyond the reach of the vaccines. There are, there are two concurrent developments. Uh, and one involves, of course, the president himself uh, maintaining that this is an emergency and persisting in the national emergency that he declared and put into effect through an emergency uh, through a, an executive order. The pharmaceutical company, the pharma companies, coming out and in the case of Pfizer, saying that we're suspending our request uh, for approval for their vaccine for children five and under. Uh, and Moderna, uh, which is seeking emergency uh, use authorization for theirs. Uh, can you explain what that's about? Okay, so let's uh, take the first part of the question. The emergency declarations originally were all predicated on 
the observation that we could overflow our hospitals, that there would be such a deluge of patients, the hospital capacity would be exceeded, and then we couldn't care for patients with other problems and would just literally become a humanitarian disaster. Um, Fortunately, over the two years, our hospitals have built more and more capacity. We have more and more skill in maintaining patients and the successive viral mutations are less likely to lend somebody hospitalized because uh, the virus itself is becoming less virulent, but also early treatments are far more effective. And, you know, just along those lines, before we get to the vaccines, there are two really positive developments. One is on uh, February 11th, Lilly announced uh, betalibumib, which is a new monoclonal antibody. It works against uh, the current Omicron variant, and it's 175 milligrams in two mLs of an infusion. So we literally give a quick infusion over 30 seconds and they've committed to supply 600,000 doses to the United States. And this is a wonderful news. These monoclonal antibodies are safe and effective. I've used them now for a year and a half. And then AstraZeneca announced on February 24th that the EVU Shield monoclonal antibody pair was EUA approved. Now this is Tixagivimab and Silgagivimab. And three, uh, we basically give 300 milligrams of each uh, intramuscularly, and then six months later, come back and give 150 milligrams intramuscularly. And it's approved for severely immunocompromised patients like transplant patients, as well as those who uh, just can't take the vaccines because of severe allergic reactions. And, right. uh, you know, this is uh, the EV Shield and, and the, the AstraZeneca and Lilly products our advancements, and you know, it's frustrating to me as a doctor, Lou, is that there's no mention of this on TV. There's no public service announcements. The patients aren't aware. So each patient, we have to start a scramble to find it. I had two patients yesterday where EVU Shield came up, and uh, we again have had this oblivion to therapeutics while there's been a hyper focus on vaccines. And as you pointed out, the the vaccine developments are not concordant. So with the Pfizer. Uh, program under age five, uh, it was based on basically trying to get an antibody rise. And uh, the children's immune systems just weren't, you know, amenable to that at this point in time, they're receiving other vaccines for other reasons. And children of that age don't get clinically ill with uh, COVID-19 anyway. So that was aborted. Now the Moderna attempt ages six to 11, that was with 50 micrograms of Moderna messenger RNA, which is half the 100 microgram adult dose. And the study involved 4,700 children, but it was just predicated again on antibody rises, no clinical outcomes. So uh, we know the children can basically get a runny nose in that age group. About 30 to 40% with the vaccine though, get a pretty significant uh, fever and they get clinically sick. So many have thought uh, that really the vaccine makes the kids sicker than COVID would itself. And so that's the reason why there's been this uh, fractured response to pediatric vaccination. You probably heard uh, Joe Ladapo, the new Surgeon General hired by right. Ron DeSantis, basically saying so Florida's not going to support vaccination for children. Yeah, and and the Surgeon General of Florida, uh, he's he stands out. Uh, Governor Ron DeSantis stands out as being adamantly opposed, and now making it a matter of regulation that they will not receive uh, vaccinations. Uh, that's a strong statement. Uh, do you concur? Well, they said that they just don't support it for children um, uh, in, in, in the upper age range, I think could be 18 on that. 
Um, but it, you know, it allows for exceptions. A, a child who's severely immunocompromised, one with cystic fibrosis right. or congenital heart and lung disease. Uh, but this idea of just uh, you know statewide vaccination of children, it's just not supportable based on the data. Uh, for this for kids under twelve, and uh, as you say, with exceptions. But at the same time, you know what I've been hearing uh, from you, from Dr. Malone, from others is that children don't need really, and maybe I'm misinterpreting uh, you and uh, much of what I'm reading, but there's just no supported uh, basis uh, empirically uh, for the children uh, requiring a, a vaccine against uh, Omicron or it, frankly for COVID. Yeah, it's true. And, and because the vaccines do have risks, I mean, there are uh, vaccine deaths now published in the peer-reviewed literature of children who have taken the vaccine and suffer heart damage or other complications. And as the vaccine deaths rise in the vaccine adverse event reporting system, now with the CDC uh, reducing the number of COVID deaths in their data by 40% in children, uh, there actually may be more vaccine-related deaths than COVID respiratory illness deaths in children. And so the, the balance, the risk-benefit balance is not in their favor. And, and so I agree with Ladapo and DeSantis. We should, we should back down on that. And on the issue of the CDC, one of the issues that everyone is struggling with, and I try to, to represent our audience in this, uh, to trying to stay up with all of this while they're uh, going about their business, uh, very simply put, do they need to worry if they have a healthy child uh, under the age, 12 or under, uh, should they or should they not, in your judgment, as a general principle, uh, require a vaccine? The answer is no. And we are watching the news media still, despite all of the great work that you, uh, what I call the, the doctors of dissent, uh, who, who we owe a tremendous uh, uh, debt to uh, for bringing the American public uh, to awareness of what actually is going on, the efforts to control our lives, to make decisions that are better left to the doctors. I think most Americans would every time want their doctor to make a medical or public health decision uh, and, and help them in making, uh, you know, my general view is when I go to my doctor, I concur. Uh, no matter what uh, she says, I concur. Uh, and uh, it, because she has, I think she's been right throughout our experiences, uh, you know, as our family doctor. Uh, I just don't understand how we can get to a point where we have to challenge the CDC, our public health system, because we know, for example, uh, Pfizer has hidden statistics on adverse reactions. I suspect so has every other uh, pharma company. We know CDC hasn't been straightforward from the outset of this pandemic with the American people are forthcoming with data or are, are right uh, in many cases. How should we regard the CDC? I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, CDC has always been uh, in service to doctors and not vice versa. CDC uh, is an outbreak investigation unit. It provides uh, data uh, you know, I'm a cardiologist, so you believe it or not, the CDC has dietary recommendations that it puts out there, and that's fine. Uh, but the CDC doesn't treat patients, and it can't overreach and start to give dictums or rulings. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And 
the, um, the inconsistency with how the CDC has approached the pandemic over two years with things up and down and, and back and forth, uh, the public has really lost trust in the CDC. And I think because they've been really out of their uh, range of activities, if they stayed in support of data and deferred to doctors on the decisions, we, we could keep the priorities where they need to be. You know, the average age of death of an American with COVID-19 is well into the 80s. The focus should always be on the seniors, Lou. The, this, you know, this hyper-focus right. on children and young people is misplaced. It, it misplaced, but it seems Moderna and Pfizer uh, are, are sort of committed to a revenue stream uh, that would include uh, children uh, five years, uh, six years old and under. Uh, and this to me is just stunning when lay people, uh, the great unwashed like me, uh, who know nothing about medicine, who know nothing about the science of genetics uh, uh, and virology, we have to depend on our doctors and, uh, and we would be uh, depending on our public health agencies, if they had been straight, uh, forthright, and honest with us, uh, it's it's just to me a terrible thing uh, to put the uh, an American citizen, a uh, parent, a family in that position. It, it's awful, uh, and yet there's still this there's this noise that surrounds the basic issue of whether or not I have to worry about my child and whether I need to get him or her. A, a vaccination if they're 12 or under. Lou, there's a philosophical divide in thinking that's behind this. That I think a lot of people don't understand. The CDC and FDA and the NIH, White House Task Force, their philosophical belief that it looks like it's driving everything is they really don't believe the vaccine program will work. They really don't, unless every single person takes the vaccine. And because the vaccines don't last very long, that means everybody taking a vaccine every three to six months. It's baked into their belief system. And this is completely counter to how we use vaccines uh, today. You know, as a, an adult internist and cardiologist, I use the pneumococcal vaccine, but it's, it's targeted towards our seniors. Same thing with the shingles vaccine. However, if, a, if my child's gonna go to college and they're gonna be in you know, congregate dormitory settings, they get the meningococcal vaccine. Everything is targeted and we rely on the vaccine to do what it says it's going to do. And I rely on them in my practice. But with COVID-19, there's a thought that this is a moonshot, if you will. I, I do have a belief that some people, they probably are staking their entire careers on this, that they wanna go down in history as saving the world with a vaccine. And they're trying to blanket the entire world with repeated injections of novel vaccines, basically genetic vaccines, and it is the gamble of uh, uh, basically of modern history, in my view. It's also a gamble that is uh, using uh, the American people as chips, uh, and and I and I resent that, and I'm troubled by it, and I don't uh, I, I don't see the logic of it because now we're here, Dr. Fauci again, who's once again reemerged, has gone in front of television cameras and said, now this, there's a surge coming. Uh, Europe had a surge, and therefore we're going to have a surge of the BA2 variant of Omicron. Uh, and we don't know how deadly it will be. We do know it'll be highly trained, which is, by the way, another interesting aspect. That, yeah, we apparently know that it's 50% more transmissible, uh, this new variant, BA2. 
but we don't know how deadly. And I, I and he's already talking about more restrictions. Uh, I deeply resent it because he's he doesn't explain. He could take lessons from you for for a week and still wouldn't understand how to communicate. I believe, uh, at least forthrightly and honestly, and with uh, in a fashion that's explanatory and clear uh, to the to the layperson. Uh, what are we to think about? Yeah, Lou, the very first paper I published in 2020 on COVID-19 in the peer-reviewed literature, uh, the main point I was making is we need a U.S. hospital census of people admitted for COVID respiratory illness. Not, not admitted for an ankle sprain who tests positive for COVID, but you know people with COVID respiratory illness. We have 5,600 hospitals in the United States, 2,200 acute care hospitals. And to this day, we still don't have that census. We have test positive cases, uh, which now uh, uh, is not capturing really what's going on because so many people are using store-bought over-the-counter tests that aren't registered. And then we have deaths which run in arrears by six weeks or so and have to wait for death certificates to be signed. And that's a laborious uh, task. So we really don't have the data to inform us if a next wave is there. Uh, you know, We get these day-to-day -day hospital reports and we have to rely on them. We've been through Alpha, Delta, and Omicron so far, and we've never exceeded hospital capacity. The closest we got to it is right uh, uh, after I testified in the U.S. Senate in October 19th of 2020. I told Americans, mm -hmm. I said, listen, if we don't start early treatment, you're going to be horrified if we can't take care of people with heart attacks. Wave. And we nearly got to that brink. I think we're a few thousand below that brink during the Alpha wave. Uh, uh, but be, uh, beyond that now, um, I think we're okay. Uh, if the next, if it's going to be BA2, uh, there, there could be a surge. Now, the majority of people with the BA1 were fully vaccinated. And that's the reason why the, the curve was so high. Every single study with Omicron shows the majority of people who are getting are fully vaccinated. Uh, you have White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, who probably had Delta in the fall. She's fully vaccinated, almost certainly boosted. Uh, she had Delta in the fall. Now she's got Omicron now. Uh, I mean, the vaccinated can expect to get Illness, it's been my experience, though, uh, if they do get it, it's mild and it's manageable like a common cold. Manageable, but at the same time, uh, it, it, there's an open question out there as well. And that is, are, if the vaccine doesn't prevent the disease, which is what every, every I think, nearly every American thought of was the purpose of a vac uh, vaccine, uh, instead, it, uh, uh, it mitigates the uh, symptoms. And... Uh, uh, helps you not go to the hospital, a, a severe case, uh, all of which is great, uh, particularly if you're in my age group. But I don't understand how we got to, we sort of uh, mutated to a situation where we're going to, we're told we may need four, may five uh, vaccinations, uh, and they're still not going to stop uh, these variants of COVID-19. It's It just seems there's some dishonesty uh, here between our government uh, and, and uh, our pharmaceutical industry uh, in, in in all of this. Uh, and I, I can't, uh, you know, well, people ask me about it and I, and I have to say it, it's a it's a head scratcher for sure. It sounds like you're frustrated, like so many Americans. Uh, you know, I can tell you, at least for the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is minimally effective. It's safe. You know, I took the flu vaccine this year. Uh, I was at a meeting in Washington last week, and I asked one of the, the flu vaccine experts for the NIH, I said, what was the coverage of this year? What protection did I really get? 
And he said the number was 17%. That's what, uh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's pretty small. Okay. So I, I took it, you know, I'm supposed to do it as a doctor. I don't have a problem with it. Uh, we we're now past a year with the COVID-19 vaccines. It's known that the virus has mutated considerably. Remember the randomized trials of Pfizer and Moderna against the binary endpoint of COVID-19 respiratory illness at home. It prevented 90% of cases. It was, it was effective against the wild type and probably a little bit of the alpha variant. But mm -hmm. now that it's mutated all the way through Omicron, uh, we, you know, the, the vaccines were never modified to cover the new, in a sense, the new spike protein on Omicron, because it's a very narrow vaccine. Uh, so we don't have coverage now. And so this idea of keep pushing the vaccine that essentially is obsolete is making people frustrated. And it gets, apparently, the obs obsolescence, if I could use the expression, occurs rapidly within, uh, in some cases, uh, even under 90 days, uh, according to some of the tests that I've read about. Uh, I, that was never envisioned. That was never uh, imagined. Uh, and it's had a significant effect. We've got 70, almost 70, three-fourths of the population have had at least one shot, one vaccination. Uh, my goodness, uh, for that to have lasted only 30 days or 90 days, uh, whatever number they want to pull out of the uh, out of their testing, uh, it, it just it just seems like they've they've gone to absolutely no trouble to explain that to the American people. They haven't, and there's uh, almost certainly ecological pressures that played a role. Do you know social distancing and lockdowns? The first time we've done this, in, at least in our uh, you know my lifetime for sure. Right. It, 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 you know, that actually, it's thought maybe put evolutionary pressures to make the virus more contagious. It literally had to jump greater distances to infect one another. And then we put in the vaccines and the vaccines, because they're narrowly applied against the spike protein, the virus quickly figured out how to mutate, create a little different conformation of spike protein, and then create what's called antigenic escape. It literally can escape the effect. So the vaccine raises up antibodies, but it misses the target because the virus is cleverly mutated. So mm -hmm. the, the antibodies can't hit the, hit the target. So the vaccination program almost certainly has led to the hyperdominance of these mutants. If we would have had a blend, you know, before the vaccine program, we always had a blend of variants. There never was a single variant. It was a blend of variants. So you'd have a chance natural immunity could fight this down. We could treat the virus. Now with the vaccination program, we, we basically created the Delta variant of, you know, it, there was 100% Delta at one point in time, now 100% Omicron. The vaccine program, there's three analyses, one by Subramanian, Kampf, and Beattie now, showing the mass vaccination program, as opposed to a targeted program, is basically backfiring worldwide. Well, let me turn to what should we do? Uh, there is a interesting, uh, to me, a role that suddenly public health agencies have taken on in this. There was at least a little modesty, a little uh, humility in the early months because they didn't know what they were dealing with. They had no pretense that they knew what was going on. And once they got the vaccine, suddenly the public health agencies were, were absolutely, uh, certitude was uh, permeating the bureaucracy. Uh, it was also flooding the airwaves. And now we're at a point where people have forgotten about the science. Uh, Fauci said he's Mr. Science, and suddenly, uh, no one else could be. Uh, but right now, I, I'm not convinced that our public health agencies are following science. I'm not con convinced pharma is doing so. 
uh, because frankly, I think they're more interested in getting a younger uh, target market and boosting their revenue. It's that straightforwardly. Am I wrong? It almost seems that way. You know, I can tell you one of the biggest checkboxes that we don't see anybody talking about, that is who's already had COVID. This is really important because, uh, you know, as we're dealing with our military and employees and travel, we need to know who's actually already had the illness. A well-documented case, uh, there is a paper from Johns Hopkins, uh, first author is Alejo and colleagues, showing a well-documented case of having COVID. There's a 99% chance they have very strong immunity by the antibodies. If they get a second infection, it's almost always mild like Jen Psaki is having right now and one really doesn't need to be alarmed. Uh, we need to know who's had the illness and who, who hasn't. We need to know who's, the, who's on the Delta Force, who's on the A-team, who's not gonna get really sick and who is uh, you know, relatively protected. Uh, we don't have second or third cases where people are ending up on the ventilators. It doesn't happen. Uh, even the uh, uh, wild type through the Delta in a paper from Qatar in New England Journal of Medicine, they showed it's 60% protective even against Omicron. So that's the reason why Omicron shifted and attacked the vaccinated because it really couldn't infect uh, to a great degree those who already had the uh, natural immunity from COVID recovered. So as more and more people become COVID recovered, we need that checkbox. If tomorrow we created a, a registry, employers had a registry, those people clearly don't need vaccines. In fact, there are three studies showing somebody who's recovered who takes a vaccine is just asking for trouble, more reactions and problems. Uh, you know, getting back to the fundamentals, if you, mm -hmm. were to, if you were to track a chickenpox outbreak when we were kids, the first thing you wanna know is, has the kid already had chickenpox? That's the first thing you wanna know. And, and so to ignore whether or not someone has already had this, and this was a point Scott Atlas made when he was on the White House task force, is a major scientific blunder. We, we should always be first and foremost checking a box to see if we had it. I work in a large cardiology practice in Dallas-Fort Worth, and that's a checkbox we have on our forms. We actually want to know who has already had COVID because we know that we're going to be safe out in the workplace and in the hospital. And and that is the purpose of asking that question uh, as to whether or not uh, they need to be vaccinated, correct? That's a big piece to it. Uh, you know, it's clear that the FDA agreed on this. The FDA said nobody who's had COVID-19 in the past should be in the randomized trials of vaccination. Nobody. So the FDA strictly excluded them. And we should follow the, that guidance. You know, once the public program started, there tended to be kind of a creep. And people said, well, if you had COVID, you can take an extra one. Maybe it would kind of give you a little extra jazz. And we're like, wait a minute, we never do that. If people are excluded from the randomized trials, also pregnant women were excluded. Women at childbearing potential, they were excluded. Uh, we can't just go ahead and give it a, give it a, a whirl out in the public program with a, a, a novel vaccine. We should have followed the strict regulatory discipline. And it's leaving that discipline that got us in trouble. You mentioned... Uh, the release of the Pfizer data, the Public Health and Professional Review Committee that the, um, the lawsuit lined up, led by Aaron Siri uh, against Pfizer and the FDA. Remember, Pfizer wanted delayed release of the data for 55 years. Yep. And then they doubled down to over 70 years. Finally, the, the judge prevailed, the court prevailed and said, listen, release the data over the next eight to nine months. The first tranche of information came out. Pfizer knew about 1,223 deaths. Shortly, worldwide, shortly after their use of their vaccine, people were reporting it to Pfizer. They thought the vaccine caused these deaths. 
1,291 special adverse events of interest, a whole range of various diseases that are now written up in the literature that the vaccine causes. So granted, the majority of people who took the vaccine are fine. There's people in my family downstairs, Lou, who took the vaccine, they're fine. And I hope they have some modicum of protection, but there are others who've been injured. And Senator Ron Johnson now has proposed legislation to have some compensation for them because they're frustrated. They took the vaccine because they were told to. Uh, now they've suffered a complication. And that is good for him. And that's the responsible thing for our government to do. There's been some irresponsibility uh, as the public health agencies, in my judgment, have gone about this. You've described some of it. Uh, other doctors who have been on the point of the spear uh, trying to break the orthodoxy and, and, and bring rationality uh, to, the, to the vaccine enterprise. And I'm not referring to the pharma companies. I'm talking about the enterprise itself of, of moving this program out, getting people vaccinated and, and reacting to the, the COVID quote unquote emergency. We are now at the point with, where you have said, uh, and other doctors, you have said, I think straightforwardly, we don't have a national emergency because it was the predicate was hospitals overflowing, unable to deal with the number of patients and preempting other care uh, that other citizens would need besides the COVID patients. Uh, the Senate has passed a bill to rescind that national emergency. Now, the cynics are saying this administration is persisting in that uh, emergency for its own purposes, for control. The left has shown that it uh, has an more than an authoritarian streak, that they have authoritarian imperatives within their philosophy, their ideology, which is, if not Marxist, verging on Marxist. Uh, what is the reality here in your judgment? Should that state of emergency be removed? not as a political matter, as a science matter. The, the state of emergency um, is really what the whole house is built upon. Uh, and the state of emergency is the basis for the overreach. And so the overreach is actually not regulatory, but it's almost determined by each employer, each entity, each sports team uh, to, to really incredible degrees. And we're seeing really a quixotic type of approach where one day there's testing every week and vaccines, the next week they drop everything. And we're seeing this up and down all over the place. And it's because of this, this emergency word is hanging over everyone. Uh, I, on January 24th in the US Senate, I made the case and is well supported by former White House advisor, um, Paul Alexander, who's reviewed all the data on this, uh, that the emergency phase is over. There's still a pandemic, but the emergency phase is over. We can focus on therapeutics and handling things from here. Uh, but declarations of uh, emergency should be dropped across the country, allowing people to basically go back to normal. We saw President Biden actually in a clip on, on the news in some type of forum saying that, you know, COVID-19 has become an opportunity, uh, an opportunity for a new world order. And it's, it's really, uh, I think, very uh, dark. It's in line with Klaus Schwab's book that says, uh, you know, the Great Reset. And, and I think people mean that. You, you, you said the word totalitarian. I mean, that is about as un-American a word I can think of. Yep. Uh, but it's coming, it's creeping right in. You can, you can see it. It's in the open. And it's, it's, it's swept Canada. Uh, Australia, my gosh, I, I mean, what I, what I witnessed in that freedom convoy, uh, what all Americans uh, who watched it saw 
was uh, it, it would be, have been unthinkable uh, a few years ago, uh, but to see Justin Trudeau behaving like a ten pot dictator, uh, who a man who has impaired intellectual abilities to begin with, uh, in that performance, but <laughs> uh, calling out the their emergency act, uh, he's he swore it wasn't martial law; it was just an emergency act. But stripped uh, Canadians of so many of their constitutional rights, uh, he wanted to uh, to extend it as well. We now know that this this will go beyond today. Uh, this uh, this extension of the emer national emergency powers given the the executive branch. Uh, we have to, we have to end this now uh, because it's it's it is just it's un-American. Uh, not only is it totalitarian, but it is it is d damaging the country in ways whether it's the closure of schools and the ability to keep them open, but whether it is damaging children as a result of having to wear masks, mandates, all of that has to go away, uh, in my opinion, and I want yours. And Lou, it's wasting money. You know, we've covered vaccines and some other topics, but there's a paper in JAMA Open, uh, a research letter by Connor and colleagues, and it evaluated 1 million uh, I'm sorry, 179,127 people in a routine testing uh, in a, a workplace, uh, mean age, 36 years old, young workers. It, this study is like every other study done of asymptomatic testing. The yield of doing weekly testing is less than 1%. In this uh, study, it was a 0.35% positivity rate. Of those who that were positive, Lou, 62% were false positive. Now there's been study after study showing that all this massive testing of people who are well, getting on airplanes, in school, in workplaces, has less than a 1% yield. And when it's positive, it misleads the worker and the employer. We need to drop asymptomatic testing. The FDA has never supported it. The World Health Organization has never supported it. And again, it's, it's an overreach by employers. I think out of fear and, and, and out of lack of good leadership from governments, governments should be telling employers, listen, uh, you know, go ahead and drop this. You don't need to do it. And with with President Biden threatening to veto the Senate legislation that they just passed to rescind the national emergency, uh, this is Orwellian. Uh, the power is in his hands and he has the power to keep it in his hands, at least until they could uh, override that veto. And with this uh, this uh, conference, this Democratic conference in the Senate and the House, there is no way in the world that they would yield one iota of this, uh, one ounce of this power that they now have, particularly un not until after the 2022 uh, midterms. Uh, I see, without question, uh, a an administration that is absolutely committed uh, to its agenda and to stripping our, our government of uh, its responsibilities to the people in order that uh, a different form of government will emerge. It's unprecedented in American history. Uh, a government that has been weaponized against its people uh, and with an indifference to actually the health of the people uh, or the science that they profess to follow. Uh, your thoughts on the context of all of this, the, the medical emergency, the pandemic, uh, and the response of pharma uh, and the government? It's been a confluence. It's it's a coup d'etat using the the 
the Trojan horse, if you will, of a medical pandemic. Uh, you know, that's been the entree to a new way of thinking. And many think it's been uh, brewing now for several years, this uh, kind of globalist agenda waiting for the opportunity, as Klaus Schwab outlines in his book, just waiting for this to happen. Uh, and there are so many interested parties, right? So you have uh, China and the Chinese Communist Party. You have the pharmaceutical uh, companies and, and the National Institutes of Health and, and CEPI and Gavi and EcoHealth Alliance, the Gates Foundation, uh, World Economic Forum, the... Um, uh, uh, Rockefeller Institute. You can, uh, in Peter Bregan's book, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, that's a great read. A nonfiction has a thousand citations, really lays out how complicated this is, uh, but what a sweeping change it's having all over the world. It's not just the United States. You've already pointed out in some places in the globe uh, is far more severe. Uh, I think almost everybody recognizes uh, this is not a dire emergency. This isn't a tsunami or, or a nuclear holocaust. Uh, uh, this is, a, a, for most people, a mild viral illness, uh, some more severe that now we can manage. Uh, we have a great advance in therapeutics now, and I think there should be no more controversies on treating COVID-19. We have plenty of products. The, the new oral Pfizer drug is terrific. Uh, these new, new drugs I reviewed today, the monoclonal antibodies are terrific. So even one basically can act as a preventive uh, almost certainly far more effective than a vaccine. Uh, so it's the uh, context of a viral pandemic and, the, and an instrument, a major instrument of totalitarian rule is the vaccine program. Absolutely. And I, and I thank you for, for saying that because we have to, and I'm talking to everyone in the audience, we have to urge our representatives and our senators now to rescind this national emergency. And it needs to become a very big deal right now because otherwise it's going to be abused. We have a president, I'm not going to get into the issue of whether he should even be in the Oval Office, but the fact that he is, and with obvious limited again, uh, some impairment, uh, and with also uh, the conflicts that he has, he is, <laughs> He is conflicted with his interests and his family's interest in China, in Russia, in Ukraine, and in Iran. Uh, and at the same time, the four principal powers arrayed against the United States right now, we have a president who is in an absolute position of conflict of interest and who has a history uh, and, frankly, a sordid one. Uh, with uh, three of the four uh, uh, state actors. Uh, we have to act. Ladies and gentlemen, please get a hold of your representative, contact them, uh, and we will be putting up a petition right, uh, right away on our website uh, to do so. Uh, it, it's, it's urgent uh, what we have to do here. Uh, would you agree, doctor? I agree. I think that's the most concrete step that can be taken is to uh, stop the declaration of emergency and have restoration to normal while we recognize we're, you know, we're dealing with this medical problem, revert advice and, um, and the next medical steps to doctors, have the CDC actually step down on recommendations, same as with the National Institutes of Health. FDA needs to return to being a safety watchdog, and they need to immediately right. call Pfizer and understand why these people died and how things can be corrected. 
the vaccine manufacturers <clears throat> can offer their products and uh, they'll have to make the case for them. And Americans can decide if they think there's a compelling case, someone needs, you know, it's obvious the products have risk and where there's risk, there must be choice. It seems to me, you know, I had traveled to Russia a few years ago and, you know, I heard the nationalistic statements when I was over there then, uh, you know, they have a regret for perestroika. They want restoration of the Soviet Union and some of the states back. And it's clear this has been going on for a few years now. They waited for a vulnerable time and they went for it. And you can see when the vulnerable time was and the leadership in the White House. Yeah, uh, no question. In my opinion, Joe Biden in the White House is an invitation to the takeover of Taiwan by the communist Chinese uh, of Ukraine. I believe that Vladimir Putin uh, sorely wishes he had not taken advantage of that weakness because his army, is, his military is nothing like had been advertised or uh, was viewed by even, uh, by, by even NATO. It is, uh, it is a deadly standoff right now uh, in Ukraine. I, I want to turn to, uh, if, if you've got time, I want to share a personal story. Uh, a, a friend, uh, a family friend of ours, who has not had COVID, had uh, ulcers in her mouth uh, that persisted for two months. Uh, and she would take a shot, and forgive me for not knowing what the shot was, but uh, because of your, you're teaching all of America about antivirals and uh, the uh, home treatments. This is a story about hydrogen peroxide, as we're seeing article after article saying it's a free radical and don't touch it. We told her about your protocol with hydrogen peroxide, which we had used ourselves, my wife and I. She used that, uh, that diluted peroxide. Uh, she did not use it nasally, but she did gargle with it. And after frustrations, her, the doctors didn't know what to do. And she had never had COVID, quote unquote. Those ulcers finally disappeared with using that uh, hydrogen peroxide, uh, diluted hydrogen, hydrogen peroxide uh, to gargle with. And I just want to say thank you uh, for bringing that to the public attention because it was so helpful. It, uh, you know, she still doesn't know what she had because they couldn't diagnose this. And this is several doctors she went to, but uh, it worked. And I just well, wanted you, you to know that. You know, we call those aphthous ulcers and they're painful, the white painful ulcers you can see in the mouth. And some believe there's a viral origin to them, whether or not there's you know, a whole series of viruses in the mouth. The American Dental Association has recommendations for virucidal therapy in the mouth, primarily for periodontal disease. And interestingly, you know, there's a variety of solutions that work. There's dilute povidone iodine or betadine. There's dilute hydrogen peroxide. There's actually dilute sodium hypochlorite, which is dilute bleach. It's in the uh, ADA guidelines. So, you know, you have to really dilute it and don't swallow it. None of these you swallow, but these are very safe agents. And now there's 12 clinical studies in COVID-19, three large randomized trials, and it works for the common cold as well. I had a cold recently and I used the dilute povidone iodine, just a half a teaspoon and a shot glass of water, one and a half ounces uh, over the sink, uh, get a little syringe or a spray bottle, squirt it up the nose, sniff it back, and then spit it out. It's got to go all the way back and around and spit it out, and then gargle with the rest, do it twice on each side. It's amazing how quickly a cold will go away. 
And it's amazing with COVID-19, how one can basically turn the PCR test negative, which is what the studies have shown, quickly making someone less, less infectious. You wanna reduce the spread of the virus, use the oral nasal uh, virus right. therapy approach. And then importantly, it markedly reduces the intensity and severity of the illness so people don't end up in the hospital. Now we use other drugs instead, but uh, you know, I just tweeted out about Jen Saki. I said, I bet she'll just need the, you know, it's called the McCullough protocol. It's now copyright. I bet she'll just need that top part of the protocol, which is all available over the counter. No, no prescriptions are needed. Well, I, I just wanted to say thank you for that. And uh, for, and by the way, my wife and I, when we did it, uh, uh, thinking that we, when we had been exposed to COVID, but uh, did not get it, uh, we credit uh, your protocols and. Uh, uh, also, I know that uh, our family friend would like to would say uh, thank you so much. Lou, a couple of pointers. One, put a pinch of salt in it. It makes it a little bit more like a physiologic saline. And if it stings up there, it's too strong. Make sure you dilute right. it. It, sh it should be right. very comfortable. It's just a little messy over the sink. I've even done it in my father-in-law who's in the house. He's 98 years old. I had to help him, uh, but it works. And it's, it's safe. I mean, this yeah. is the type of thing. I recently went to Atlanta. I met with some distant family members of Martin Luther King family and went over this for the African-American community. They said, Dr. McCullough, are you telling us that hydrogen peroxide, something simple that's in our house, could have made a difference? You know, African-Americans have double the mortality of COVID-19. I said, yes. I didn't know that. Yes, we have to get the message out. This is so simple. Yeah, and every household should have it. But, you know, my heart goes out to most inner city hospitals. It's been uh, African-Americans and Hispanics uh. have really, uh, really contributed. And it's part because of the fact there's a lot more vertical households, right? Where there's children, middle-aged and older people living under mm -hmm. the same roof. And then partly because of higher rates of obesity, diabetes, uh, heart and lung disease. But, but it's clear. Uh, the demographics are clear that that group is a group that we should really be focusing on public health messaging and the nasal oral virucidal prevention. By the way, you used it preventively. It does work that way. If you get exposed and you go, ahead, go home and do this, it can actually uh, knock out the infection before it really takes hold. So I want to say thank you again for the McCullough protocols, for your voice through this pandemic. As you well know, you and your colleagues made a tremendous difference for this country and still are making a great difference for all of us. Well, thank you so much. Dr. Peter McCullough, his podcast is America Out Loud. Thank you, everybody, for being with us here on The Great America Show. Tomorrow, our guests, Senator Rand Paul and Congressman Burgess Owens. Please join us. We want to invite you to sign up for our Great America Show Advisory and Newsletter. Simply go to ludobs.com. That's ludobs.com and click on the email newsletter button. It's as simple as that. And we'll send you our advisories and alerts as well as our weekly newsletter. I don't want to overstate anything, but I'm pretty sure you will absolutely sense at least a small positive change in your world outlook. We invite you to join us and stay in touch. Thank you. That's ludobs.com. Thanks, God bless you, and God bless America. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.